Um, so Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to be reading verses 29 through 35. Okay, so, so this is right in the middle, if you're new with us, this is right in the middle of the Olivet Discourse, discourse which is the fifth and final discourse in Matthew's Gospel of Jesus. And, and I, just, I thought it might be helpful to, to just go through chapter 24 very briefly, and I mean very briefly, just to lay out how I've been teaching the, 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 the discourse up to this point. Because um, I think if you get the lay of the land, that'll help you as we come to this morning's passage, but also as you think through what we've taught um, in the past few weeks. And so if you, if you just, in your Bible, just let your eyes go back or up to the beginning of chapter 24. And this whole thing started when the disciples hear Jesus predict that the temple is going to be destroyed. So he says, not one, one stone is going to be left on top of the other. To which the disciples hear that and they get to the Mount of Olives, or the Mount of Olives and they're looking back on the Temple Mount and they say, when are these things going to be and what's going to be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? That's what the disciples asked Jesus. And these two questions are what shape the entire discourse. And what I said, which I still think is true, is when the disciples ask, when are these things going to be and what's going to be the sign of your coming in the end of the age, I think it's all a jumbled mess in their mind. I think the disciples hear the destruction of the temple and they think, okay, this must be the end. So Jesus, tell us about the end. What's going to happen? And so I think it's all in their minds. They don't have these cut, here, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. I think they just know it's going to end. Tell us. Give us some answers to our questions. And so when, when, when Jesus hears their question, as he knows that they think, okay, the destruction of the temple is going to be the, the beginning of the end, and they want to know all the details, Jesus then is going to respond. And so what they're asking about is, is the destruction of the temple, yes, but that's part of the bigger, in their mind, category of the end, the, re, the end of the age, the coming of the Son of Man. And so what Jesus does, beginning in verse 4, is he doesn't answer their question. Instead, he gives them signs. Instead of giving them signs of the end and things to look for, he gives them not signs or signs that aren't the end. And so we read those in, in a couple weeks ago, but he gives them signs that are going to occur, signs like, false Christs and wars and rumors of wars and warring nations and famines and earthquakes and Christians being delivered up to tribulation and death and the gospel going forth. And he says, these are signs that are not signs of the end. The end is not yet. Don't be alarmed. This is not the end. The end has not yet come when you see these things. In fact, he says that these are just signs that are going to mark the, the, the first and second coming, the time between the times. That, that's what he says. These are, these are birth pains. These don't mean that the end is immediate. These are going to happen between my first and second coming. That's, I think, how he answers first. And they ask him, hey, we want signs. He says, well, here's some things that are going to happen that aren't signs. But then in verse 15, what we looked at two weeks ago, or last week, he finally starts to answer the question. So in verse 15, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation in the holy place that Daniel was talking about, when you see that, then you know the temple is going to be destroyed. So get out, so flee, so run away, because when you see that sign, the destruction of the temple, the thing I just said was going to happen, it's going to happen when you see this figure there, this antichrist there. Now, as I argued last week, you can go back and listen, but I argued last week that the predictions of verses 15 through 21 were fulfilled in AD 70 when Titus and the Roman army destroyed the temple and the destruction was total and it was devastating for the Jews. But after that, so I think that's Jesus is starting to answer their question by giving them a sign of an abomination of desolation staying in the holy place. I think Jesus then, in verse 22, shifts back to talk about this period of time, not the destruction of the temple, but, temple, but this, this period of birth pains. And again, you can go back, ne- last, 
go back and listen to last week's sermon because he's still wanting to, to the disciples, he wants them to know, okay, the destruction of the temple is significant, but it's actually just in the middle of these birth pains. It's going to be a major birth pain, but it's just going to be one of the, the signs of this period between the first and second coming. And so he shifts back in verses 20 through through 28 about how it's going to continue to be a time of tribulation until his come. It's going to grow increasingly difficult, but this, 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 these times, these birth pains are leading the way or paving the way for the coming of the Son of Man, the, the return of Christ, his second coming, which is the focus of the first set of our verses this morning. And so we'll look at those in verses 29 through 31, and then he kind of steps back, verses 32 through 35, we'll see, which is the big picture. And so I'll read the verses here um, in a second, but, but so these verses 29 through 35, I know that's a lot, but, but stick with me. I think as, as we work through these verses, it'll help to have just the big framework. But so we're looking at the coming of the Son of Man, which is the focus of 29 through 35, and under this we'll see his appearing, and then the lesson to be learned from all that Jesus said prior. So, so let, let's read the passage, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we will work through these verses together. So Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 29, Jesus continues in this Olivet Discourse, and here's what he says to his disciples. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Verse 32, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let me pray as we we continue. Father, what great hope we have in the words of our Savior. We're thankful that these are eternal words, that these words bear eternal weight, and that they will never pass away, but, but, but they can be trusted. And so I pray as we look at these specific verses, that you would encourage us, that you would cause us to persevere with great hope, preparing ourselves for the return of our Savior. We long for that day and help us to to be equipped and encouraged in light of these verses um, to long for that day even more. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Okay, so the the two points that we're gonna work through here, verses 29 through 31, the appearing of the Son of Man, and then the lesson to be learned, which is verses 32 through 35. Okay, so the appearing of the Son of Man is going to be the, the conclusion of this first major section, and then verses 32 through 35 are kind of the, the application. Jesus takes a deep breath, steps back, and says, okay, here's what you need to know about all I've just said. And so we'll start with the, the coming of the Son of Man and his appearing there in verses 29 through 31. So look at the appearing of the Son of Man, verses 29 through 31. 
And so again, we, we come here to Jesus talking about the, the, the culmination of the, these times, the, the first and second coming, the time between these comings is going to end when he comes. And so that's what he's going to talk about, his appearing. And the two main questions that, that we see answered in these, these first set of verses are the when and the what. The when and the what. And so the short answer is the when and the what is immediately after the tribulation of those days, that's the when, and the what, the Son of Man will come. That's the short answer. I think that's the right answer, but I think we should dig a little deeper to, to fill out the details a little more fully. So the, the when, the first question that's answered in verse 29 is the question of when. And so the when of this question, when's the Son of Man going to come? When's the Son of Man going to appear? Jesus says, that he's going to appear immediately after the tribulation of those days. So that's the wind. So we need to know, well, what does immediately mean? And then what is the tribulation of those days? So, so let's, let's work that out. I think it's best to start with the tribulation of those days. What does Jesus mean by that? So let's look at that first. So some people will look at the tribulation of those days and, and attach it immediately with the destruction of the temple. And they see all of these verses as describing what happened in the events of AD 70. I think that makes little sense because in verse 22, there's a shift from the time of the fulfillment of the destruction of the temple to the days being cut short to a, to a more extensive view. And so the shift has already happened in verse, two, in verse 22. So when he says, after the tribulation of those days, he's simply talking about those days that mark the time between the comings, the days of birth pains. And so when he says... Uh, that immediately after the days of those tribulation, he's not talking about the destruction of the temple. He's referring to the tribulation that would mark the life of the people of God between the first and second comings of Christ. The tribulation of birth pains, which he already mentioned, were wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes. The tribulation of, of opposition and persecution of Christians being hated and killed by all nations. Or the, the tribulation that he said, if not cut short, would eliminate the possibility of any human being being saved. The tribulation that Jesus says would be cut short for the sake of the elect. That's what he's referring to. That's the tribulation of those days. And in, in, in this context, Jesus makes the point that the tribulation of those days is cut short when the Son of Man returns. So immediately after those days, that's when the, son of, the sign of the Son of Man will appear. So that's what he means by immediately. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days means that something will happen after that time of tribulation, that period of birth pains. And what that thing that will happen is the return of the Son of Man. And so the question we ask is, well, how do you know when the tribulation of those days ends? You, you don't have a time chart or a, a timeline. You simply know the time of tribulation ends when he appears. That's when it's over. It ends when the events of verses 29 through 31 take place, which in some ways I recognize can be frustrating because it doesn't give us precision, but it's encouraging because it gives us certainty. His point isn't to give precision. In fact, he, he, he's almost intentionally ambiguous with his disciples. He doesn't want them to know, okay, it's going to happen on this time, at this, at this date. No, he wants them to know it's coming, but until that day, there's going to be suffering and persecution and tribulation. He wants them to know, I am coming back, and when I do, the tribulation of those days will be over. And in an example I thought that might help understand this in the relationship between his return and the, the end of the tribulation is if some of you may be soccer fans, um, but if you're watching a soccer game, 
there's this time where, where the, 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 the time of the game, the time allotted for the game ends, and then there's what's called stoppage time. And so there's a head referee who's looking at his watch, and he knows stoppage time. He knows what the clock says. But we as, as, as viewers don't know when stoppage time is over. We just watch until the final whistle is blown. And so the referee's looking at his clock, but as spectators, we don't know when the game is going to end. But immediately when the, after the game is over, immediately when the game ends, the referee blows his final whistle. And so the word immediately doesn't tell me how long stoppage time is going to be. It just tells me that it's going to be over when the whistle is blown. And so I think that's similar logic to understand the immediately in the appearing of the Son of Man and the, the tribulation of those days. Immediately after the tribulation of those days doesn't tell us how long the days of tribulation will be. It only tells us that when the Son of Man appears, that's the final whistle. It's over then, but not before. And I think that's the point Jesus is making at the beginning of verse 29. The when question is answered by locating the return of Christ immediately after the tribulation of those days. So he's going to ascend into heaven. There's going to be signs of, of birth pains at this time of, of suffering and tribulation and gospel spread also. But this time is going to extend until his second coming, at which point the days of tribulation will be over. And this, the, 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 these birth signs, this time of tribulation is when the first disciples were going to live. And it's the days that we are still living in. It's the days that God's people will live in until Christ comes back. So that's the win. That's the win of the second coming. But the second question we need to answer from this, these verses is the what. What will be entailed in the return of Christ? And I, I think there's three, three things that these, verses play, that these verses parse out for us. So looking first there, verse 29 and 30, there's the, the appearing. That's the first thing that it entails. The what is the appearing. So immediately after the tribulation of those days, what's going to happen? Jesus says, the sun's going to be darkened. The moon is not going to give its light. The stars are going to fall from heaven. And the powers of the heavens will be shaking, shaken. And so the first things that will happen when Jesus returns involves the testimony, as it were, of these, these heavenly bodies. He's going to appear with, with cosmic signs testifying that he has appeared. Cosmic signs, the sun darkened, the moon not giving its light, and the sun, the stars falling from heaven. These are all going to testify to the cataclysmic event that is the return of Christ. And, and I mean, the, 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 this, is, this is large language. This is universal cosmic testimony. And, 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 and when Jesus is, is describing these things, he's, he's reaching back to some Old Testament passages that, that use almost identical language to describe a, a day of the Lord. And so Isaiah, listen to Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 and 11. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy all its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light, the sun will be dark at its rising, the moon will not shed its light, and I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. So that's Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 through 11, but the, the language, the cosmic language is similar to what Jesus says in verses 29 through 31. The, the, the connection between these signs and the coming cannot be separated for from this idea of judgment. That, that's what this language is, was used for in the Old Testament. It was language of judgment. And in Isaiah, the, the, the Lord is saying through the prophet that God's going to judge Babylon. 
this great enemy of the Israelites is going to be judged, and the, the description of this judgment is going to be these cosmic signs. The, the world is going to testify that God is, his vengeance is being poured out, and that his justice is being carried forth. And God's judgment on his enemies is, is described in cosmic language. But it's not just Isaiah. Ezekiel chapter 32. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 32. Again, similar language. Verses 7 and 8. When I blot out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven I will make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. And so again, this, this language of cosmic judgment the day of the Lord, in this case Ezekiel, not Isaiah, is talking about judgment. And in Ezekiel 32, the context is Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And so the, this idea of God judging his enemies with this cosmic sign, these cosmic signs is, is, is a precedent set by the Old Testament that Jesus is picking up on and describing here, to, using to describe his second coming. And I won't read these, but Joel chapter 2, verse 10, and Amos chapter 8, verse 9 are two other passages where the same dynamic is at work. Only in those places, the judgment of God is, is described as the day of the Lord that's going to come upon God's own people. Unfaithful Judah and unfaithful Israel were also recipients of this, this judgment, these cosmic signs in this day of the Lord. And so, so there's this Old Testament pattern of this day of the Lord when the, the vengeance of God is going to be poured out and there's going to be cosmic signs. And, and I think it's helpful to view all of these days of the Lord as, as many days of the Lord. And they did, in fact, take place. God did judge Babylon and, and Egypt and unfaithful Judah and Israel. He did carry out his judgment. But they are always pointing to a final, definitive day of the Lord that was still yet to be carried out. And so I think when Jesus picks up this language at his second coming, he's, he's intending his disciples and, and those who come after them to know that the great day of the Lord is coming and it will come when the Son of Man returns. It will be the final judgment that God will pronounce on his enemies. And so I, I do tend to take these cosmic signs literally. I think that when Christ returns, these cosmic signs will actually take place. There are those that disagree with me, and I, 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 that's possible, I don't think when, anyway, we don't need to get into that. I believe when Jesus was crucified, I think darkness literally covered the earth. Because I think the significance of what was happening, the, the world was testifying to the reality of the Son of God was crucified. And so I think the, these cosmic signs will literally accompany the second coming because God himself will render the skies to issue final judgment. And with this second coming will be the passing away of heaven and earth. And the rebirth or the coming of the new creation, the new heavens and new earth, when the Son of Man appears, there will be cosmic upheaval, a, a winding up of the universe, as it were. And that's what's going to happen when He comes. He's going to appear. Verse 30, He will appear in heaven. Now what verse 30 says is there will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And I don't know, is there a, a, a sign that's going to come or is the appearing of the Son the sign. I don't know. I don't think it really matters. Some people say, well, it, it's, it's a banner that, that's unrolled in the heavens that, that proclaims the coming of the Son of Man. Maybe, that, maybe that's what happened. Maybe that is the, the, the loud trumpet that, that we'll see in verse 31. There's an unfurling of a banner. You know, every week I look at, there's banners up there. You guys can't see them, but I see them. King of kings, Lord of lords, announcing Jesus is Lord. Now, maybe that is what the sign in heaven that will appear before the Son of Man Maybe the appearing of the sun is the sign. I don't think it matters. Again, what I do know is at that time, 
the sign in heaven will either be accompanied by or will itself be the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone on earth will know that the great day of the Lord has come. He will appear and that will be the end, the coming, the second coming. He will appear, but that's not all that will happen. Look again at verse 30. Not only will he appear, verse 30, he'll appear, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And so again, this, I, we won't go back, but Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 14 is again where Jesus is pulling these Old Testament allusions from. But in Zechariah, there's this, this prophecy of a day when the families of the Israelites in Jerusalem were going to mourn because they were going to see what they had done, namely they had pierced the Holy One, and they were going to weep bitterly. And so Jesus, I think, is, is pulling that forward and saying that they are going to see, the nations are going to see the Son of Man coming and recognize what they have done. Because remember at this point, the gospel have been preached and people will know that the one coming in the clouds is the one that was crucified and buried, the one that, that beckoned and called for them to, to repent and believe. And when they see him coming, the mourning will not be that of joy. It will be that of regret. It will be that of despair, sorrow, grief. They will see the one whom they refused and rejected and recognized he has come to judge. And they will weep bitterly because it's too late. When Jesus appears as the victorious and triumphant Son of Man in power and glory, he's no longer gentle and lowly. He, he, he's not the Messiah who, who emptied himself and, and took on flesh to be crucified and, and scorned and spit on and hated but he's coming as King of kings and Lord of lords with all authority and power. And he's coming to judge his enemies and and make them a footstool completely under his feet. And at that point, the nations will recognize the tragic mistake that has been made and there will be bitter weeping at that time because it will be too late. The time for entrance into the kingdom will be past. And the only thing that awaits those nations who rejected the gospel and rejected Christ will be eternal punishment. Which is why those who spent their days rejecting and opposing and persecuting Christ and his people will despair. They will see him and mourn. This is the same idea behind Revelation chapter 1. Remember John sees the Revelation verse 7 of chapter 1. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. This is Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. That's the event. That's the coming of Christ. When the judgment will happen. <clears throat> and so I, I just, we have to stop at this crucial point and just make a, a call and appeal of application And the reality, friend, is that in light of just these few verses, the reality is that Jesus is coming back in the clouds to judge. It's going to happen. And my question in light of that is simply, are you ready? Are you ready? He will appear. And will be coming in judgment on the clouds with power and glory, and he will smite his enemies. 
And are you ready? Because you're either ready or you will mourn that day. And if you're not ready when that day comes, your only hope will be, your only response will be that of mourning. And so, and so let me just, we, we make this appeal often. Boys, girls, men, women, grandmas, grandpas, this is the reality of, of this is where we're heading. We, we just sang songs about this. He's coming back, and there'll be a great separation. And, and the, the, the time now is to be welcomed into his family, to be welcomed into his kingdom, to be part of his family. And all you do is repent and believe and recognize Jesus is who he said he was. He came and he laid down his life and took it back up again, and he's coming back to claim his own. And so we repent of our sins, and we put our faith in Jesus, and we, we are united to him. And we're accepted, we're, we're forgiven of our sins and made part of his family simply by faith in believing and recognizing my sin deserved payment and punishment, but it was paid for, my sins were punished on the cross by the Son of God. And when we, with eyes of faith, behold Jesus crucified, hanging, saying, it is finished, we believe that that refers to our sin. It was paid for, no further payment necessary, which is why when he appears in all his power and glory, we will not be afraid of being judged because he is the one who paid for our sins. And so if, if you're here and you are not convinced or assured that Jesus Christ paid for your sins in his body on the tree, we want to talk to you because he died that you might be forgiven. And in Christ, the day of the Lord will be a day of rejoicing and not of mourning. And so be ready. In fact, these next, the, the, the rest of chapter 24 into chapter 25 is, is going, to, going to emphasize being ready. And so we, as, as leaders of this church, we want you to be ready. And so come talk to Will or myself or, or Robert or someone that you know here about what it means to be ready because you can be ready for that day. It is coming. But finally, there's going to be a period and a morning, but then there's a gathering. Look at verse 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And again, I see this as nothing else. I don't see it being, being possible to be anything else than this final gathering, the final harvest at the end of the age that comes with the final appearing of the sun. The angels gathered the elect, so all of God's people are gathered from, from one end of heaven to the other. The, the, the globe, the entire world, the, the Christians are gathered together, which tells us the mission of, of the gospel going forth has been accomplished. It's achieved its purpose, and then the, the sun comes back, and when Christ returns, those who had heard and believed the gospel would be gathered together. And, and, and he uses the angels other means by which the people of God are gathered at this final coming. I mean, Matthew 13, earlier in this gospel, he talked about the Son of Man is going to send his angels to gather all of, in that, in that context, it was to the, the sinful causes of sin and lawbreakers are going to be gathered to be excluded. But again, the, the angels are gathering all the people for this final judgment. Or Matthew chapter 20, or Matthew 14, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father to re- repay each according to what they've done. So again, the, the role of angels it seems to be throughout the Matthew's gospel is that at the end of the 
age, the Son of Man will return with his angels and there will be a final gathering, <clears throat> both for the condemnation of the wicked and the vindication of the righteous. That's the great final judgment that I think is what Jesus is talking about here will happen when he appears. There's going to be his appearing, there's going to be a, a mourning, and then there's going to be a gathering, <clears throat> which is, I think, why Jesus ends with that. There's nothing left after that. And so I think verse 31 marks an end of a major section of this Olivet Discourse, which is why in verse 32 and following, our second point, our final point here, is he, there's a lesson to be learned from all that he said that proceeded. From verses 4 all the way through 31, there's a lesson. So what's the lesson? This is our final point here, the relationship between all that he said. So look at verse 32. Again, to understand this, we have to take a breath. Okay, verse 31 is over. The Son of Man's come. There's judgment. Okay, deep breath. Verse 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. And so Jesus points again to a fig tree. He talked about that earlier in, in, cha- in chapter, I think it's 23. But he's saying that the signs of the fig tree tell you what time it is. Now, listen to one author uh, explain, because I, I don't know much about fig trees in summertime, but listen to how this author explains. The fig tree was the harbinger of summer. It was somewhat unusual among the trees of Palestine in that it lost its leaves when winter hit. That makes it easier to note the change in spring when the sap begins to flow and the branches become soft or tender and ready to sprout leaves. Since this is easy to see with the absence of leaves, fig trees were one of the primary signs of the approach of summer. As the leaves began to unfurl on the fig tree, people's hearts surged with joy because the warm days of summer were around the corner. The sign of the fig tree was one of the ways that the people knew the times and seasons. And so Jesus is playing on that. You know that when you see the fig tree, that, that summer's coming. So, so he's signs and seasons is the connection, the relationship he's trying to drive home. Not simply in, ter- in terms of knowing when the summer is coming. He doesn't really, he's not teaching them just this, this, this lesson in science, but in light of all that he said, in light of their, their questions in verse 3 that started this whole thing, in light of the birth pains, in light of the destruction of the temple, he wants them to know that all these signs should prepare them to be ready. They should read the signs. And so, so, so that, that's his point. It's, it's looking back over all that came. So in verse 33, just like you know how to read the fig tree to tell the time, so also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Now, when Jesus says all these things, what are all these things? If he's been talking about all that came before, all these things are the, the birth pains that are going to trouble and plague the church between the first and second coming. That's the all these things. And all these things must happen between the first and second coming. And he's been telling them about it this whole discourse. The birth pains, and the specific birth pain of the destruction of the temple, these are signs that Jesus has said will mark the collective lives of his followers between his first and second coming. And so in verse 33, Jesus simply says, when you see all these things, when you see all these birth pains that I've been telling you about, then you will know that he is near. Now, this is a really easy way, simple way to avoid confusion, because a lot of people read this and say, this is so confusing. 
But notice, recognize that the appearing of the Son of Man that was just discussed in verses 29 through 31 that we just talked about, that cannot be included in the all these things of verse 33. It can't be because all these things are signs that he is near, Jesus says. So his second coming can't be a sign that he's near. At his second coming, when he appears, he's not near. At that point, he's here. Do you see? His second coming is what the signs are pointing to and preparing the way for. That's why I think you just have to take a deep breath between 31 and 32. Remember we talked about the Christmas lights and the entangled themes running through this whole Olivet Discourse. To make sense of verses 32 through 35, it's essential to recognize that all these things does not include the Lord's return itself. There has to be a pause in the argument because verse 32 begins, as it were, with Jesus taking a fresh breath. And so he's laid out for his disciples between verse 4 all the way through 31 what they can expect in terms of the course of the age. He's laid out what they can expect between his departure and his coming at the end of the age. I mean, after all, their question all along had been concerning the signs of his coming and the end of the age, and so he told them. And here, in wanting his disciples to learn the lesson of the fig tree, he wants them to know that when they see the signs of birth pains, and when they see the destruction of the temple, when they see these things he's told them about beforehand, he wants them to know that when they see those things, that the second coming is near. Which is why he's going to spend the next chapter in change talking about parables, some parables of being ready. There's an imminence, there's a nearness that, that the disciples must be ready for. And so in order to further confirm the certainty of his coming and the end of the age, look at how he follows up in verse 34. Truly, and this is where people get really confused, verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So again, it's really important to understand what are these things, because if he's talking about these things as the return of the Son of Man, then Jesus was wrong, because he didn't come back in the generation of his disciples. You can do all the work you want to try and make it say what it doesn't say, but he clearly assumes that what these things he's talking about are going to take place within the generation, the time period of his first disciples. Which is why I think it makes perfect sense that the, these things includes only this, these birth pains that he's told them about, not the second coming. And so this verse doesn't create the problems that people often think it does. All he's saying is this generation isn't going to pass until all these things take place. All these birth pains that I've explained and predicted, they're going to happen before your very eyes. You're going to see them. And that happened. He he isn't talking about his return. He's simply talking about the birth pains that will mark the entire age between his first and second coming. And he's telling his disciples that the birth pains will begin within their generation and then will continue and continue and continue and continue long after you're gone, until he comes again. And so in light of understanding it that way and understanding what all these things mean, all these things certainly did take place within the disciples' generation. They saw all the birth pains. And I mean, you you can go back and look at history. There are accounts of wars and famines and even earthquakes and the gospel being preached and the fall of the temple specifically was a big event that they saw. But the disciples witnessed all of the birth pains that he mentioned, just like Jesus said that they would. They, all, they, they saw all of the birth pains. So imagine if you're disciples, you've been prepared and you hear all of these things. You're not alarmed. You're like, nope, he said it's going to happen. They, he actually said, we're going to see them. 
And notice he also said, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, which is different than saying, this generation will not pass away until all these things are completed. You see how that would be different? He doesn't say, hey, these things are going to start and finish in this generation. He says, they're going to all take place before your very eyes. You're going to see them all take place. And they did. He doesn't promise their completion and return within their generation, but just that they're going to see them. And they did. In verse 35, Jesus concludes, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Which states, I mean, here we are, Jesus, at at the conclusion of this section of the discourse, states in the most emphatic terms possible that my words will never pass away. They'll never cease to exist. They'll never prove to be untrue. They'll never lose their power. They will always be here for you, disciples. You can trust my words. And, and, and what a contrast. I mean, think about the end of the age and, and the, 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 the final judgment. The earth will pass away. It will not remain forever unchanged. It will undergo quite a shaking and renovation. Right? These are things that Jesus has just highlighted in his second coming. And while earth is, is changeable and will experience change, will not remain unchanged forever, Jesus wants his disciples to know, in fact, Jesus wants us to know, that his words will never pass away. They're firm. They're certain. They're not going to undergo change. They are reliable forever. Therefore, brother, sister, we have hope. We have hope, which is the the final point of application here. It's simply this. Take heart. The message of this entire discourse up to this point shouldn't be surprising. The idea that the church is going to experience birth pains until Christ comes again, it's, it's not a new idea. It should not be shocking. I mean, oftentimes when we think about eschatology or end times or what's going to happen with the end, we tend to think in terms of it's something totally different, something totally foreign to us, and something like the world has never known, something totally new or strange and often case frightening. I mean, I know some of you watched Thief in the Night growing up, right? What a way to scare children, right? That is going to be so scary. We often think about end times stuff and discussion in, that, in, in the, those categories, But the reality is that between now and the return of Christ, the collective experience of Christians in this world, of the church in this world, is that of suffering and tribulation, that of hardship and difficulty, that of experiencing birth pains. And that's going to be the case now until he comes again. And we should not expect otherwise because Jesus, with his word, has prepared us for this. And not only has he prepared us for this, he makes promises for this. I was reminded of John chapter 16, this upper room discourse, Jesus talking to his disciples prior to the events of his passion. He says at the end of this, this, this section, he says to his disciples, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. But he doesn't end it there. You notice, do you remember how he continues? Take heart. Why? I have overcome the world. What great hope for those who follow Christ. Brother, sister, we know how the story ends. Therefore, we can take heart. As one pastor explains, when we see earthquakes and famines, when we hear of wars, when we see persecution and apostasy, when we witness the, the spread of the gospel to the far corners of the earth, when we, when we come across false prophets everywhere, we should take them to be typical of this period and pointers to the return of the Lord. Did not indicate his return is a little closer or a little further away, but simply confirm the truth that our citizenship is in heaven and from it 
we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we take heart until he appears. Let's pray as we close.